pray with me. Heavenly Father, you love the people in this room so much. I care about the people in this room so much. I pray, please, that we would hear what you have to say to us. Lord, as we talk about things that are heavy, um, I pray, please, that you would keep me from saying anything wrong. And I pray that you'd keep us from misunderstanding. You'd prevent us from that. I pray, please, that as we talk about things that are unpopular and uncomfortable, you'd give us soft hearts to see reality as it is, to not just go with what the world says or what we'd like to believe, but to listen to what you say is true. Father, as we deal with heavy and, and dark things, I pray, please, that the thing that will hang over this whole talk will be what we sung about, your forgiveness. I pray that your forgiveness for all sin, the way you paid our debt and took our punishment on the cross, I pray that that would be really loud as we look at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how to say this. Um, But I have a confession to make. This is painful to say. I have I've cheated on my wife. I was at home alone and I, I saw through the window um, one of my neighbours, their wife was getting changed. And, well, I went over and, um, yeah, I got her pregnant. Um, it's worse than that, actually. This is, this is really hard to say. But um, well, I arranged for her husband to be murdered. And then that was to try and cover it up. Now, before you guys freak out, <laughs> I haven't actually done those things. That was not a real confession. Let me repeat, that was not a real confession, I have not done those things, but I just described what a guy in the Bible did, and I wanted you to feel it, I wanted you to realize how bad it is, but don't worry, I haven't done those things, I really want you to hear that loud and clear. Anyone who slept out between this, that and that, and you can tell them later, but... but I wanted you to feel it, and um, I stole that from a preacher in Sydney, did the same thing, because um, the king of God's people, David, the golden boy, he did. I mean, look at this. Look at chapter 11. This is the, the story of a man's evil, and it almost makes you sick. Now, you guys need to know that evil is real, all right? Lots of people would like to say that, you know, humans don't do evil. Everyone's perfectly fine. People should be able to do what they want. And Satan would love for you to believe that. But what we see, I mean, a lot of people in this room know that evil is real. And what we see in this passage as well is that evil is real. And and the word for evil is sin. In this passage, we see David's sin, and there's a slide downhill, and it starts in chapter 11, verse number 1, because you see, um, you see that David actually had a job to do as the king that he should have been doing, but instead he stayed at home in bed. Have a look at chapter, one, or chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent 
Joab out with the king's men. Look at the end of verse number one. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed. So there he is in Jerusalem when he should have been doing his job. Now, before we even get into the gory details of this story, do you realize David's first sin is here? In James, the book of James, chapter 4, verse 17, God says this, If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, that's sin. Once you've, you've started sinning by ignoring what you know you should be doing, it's easier just to keep going deeper and deeper. And I mean, I mean you can always stop. It's really important that you hear that if you're on a path of sin, you can stop. No matter how deep you've gone, but it's so much easier to never have gone down that path. And actually, just we haven't even got past verse 1, but let me just say this. In your holidays, guys, watch out for that feeling. You know that feeling that there's something you should be doing. Have a soft heart towards God. Listen to that feeling. Don't, don't ignore it. You'll see how it goes for David. Now, out of thousands of years of the, the history of God's people, one reason that God, God has his, caused his word to be written here, it slows right down, it zooms in on the actions of this one guy in this one ugly situation for two whole chapters. One reason he's done that is to warn you about sin. Now, there, there are people in this room who will end up in this situation. Well, God's word, uh, God has caused this story, this, this true story to be written down. He's caused it to be preserved for thousands of years. He's caused it to be the passage, I didn't choose it, that we would talk about tonight. And he's caused you to be here. With God, the ruler of all of history, I don't believe it's an accident that you're here tonight. And so I wonder whether you will listen to the warning. Look at verse number two, where David sees a hot chick taking a bath. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Alarm bells should be going off, but instead of doing the old bounce your eyes trick, the, uh, the, the look away, don't look back, well, he gives in to temptation. Now, David is a married man. Actually, he's got a lot of wives. That's part of the problem. Um, that's part of that path he started on. But in verse number three, he finds out that this is the wife of one of his own army officers who's away at the war he should be fighting at, defending him. Now, there's something else you guys need to know about David. He's the best of the best. He's the golden boy. He's bigger than Obama. He's more popular than Taylor Swift. The biggest book in the Bible is the book of Psalms. He wrote most of it. But even though that's a book of poetry, worship songs and prayers to God, he's no, he's no pansy poet. This guy grew up on the land. He was a farmer, a sheep farmer. He used to beat off bears with his bare hands. He volunteered, yeah, true. He, he volunteered for the army. He beat this humongous tank of a man. The, this guy had the king of the people at the time and the whole army basically pooping their pants. And ladies, did I mention that he was godly? I mean, godly. This guy, he trusted God like no one you've ever seen. God even called him a man after his own heart. Peek ahead with me at chapter 12, verse 7. Then Nathan, that's a prophet that God sent after it all went wrong, said, you are the man. Not like you're the man, but like you're the man who's done the wrong thing. Um, and then he reminds David, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, 
And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. God's given this guy everything. He's even given this entire kingdom to him. And up until this point in the book of 2 Samuel, this is the most impressive guy in just in the way he treats people, in the way he runs his country. All the other countries around are like little kids in the playground trying to buy his friendship. They're sending him presents to get in his good books. He's a national hero. He's the ultimate role model. He's a godly guy. David, the king, the best of the best. David. David. David, what have you done? Look at verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4, where he cheats on his own wives, plural, with the wife of one of his own soldiers. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. That means she wasn't pregnant. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now David stupidly decides at this point to cover it up. First he tells her to get her husband home from war, or he tries to get her husband home from war, so that he'll sleep with her and then he'll think the baby's his and it'll all be hidden, he thinks. But um, what happens when that guy comes, you find out in verse 9, is he's too loyal to his country and to his you know, comrades in the army to go home and sleep in his comfy bed while his fellow soldiers are out at war. Um, so he, he sleeps with David's servants which just makes David look way worse, I think. Um, David tries the same thing a couple of times, getting him drunk and so on. And then he tries a different plan. This one is murder. So look at what happens in verse 14. He sends a message to the general of his army. Put Uriah, that's the guy's name, out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. Now this plan works. Look at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time, was, time for mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife. What are we supposed to do with that? That is ugly. I think for some people what we've just read is exactly what's wrong with the Bible. It's so negative. It's full of lies, sexual assault, and murder. You know, they say, uh, Christians say we shouldn't watch Game of Thrones. Now, by the way, I want to just point out that is, that is very true. It's very hard for me to imagine Jesus watching the Game of Thrones um, or the pornography that gets called that, um, especially when Jesus said, you shall not look at a woman lustfully. Christians should be careful what they fill their minds with. But the, I, can, I can understand the non-Christian who says, well, here it all is. It's in the Bible. It's the same. The Bible's just full of evil stuff. It's an evil book. I want to say it's critical that you understand that just because something is described in the Bible, that does not mean that the Bible is saying it's a good thing or that you should go and do it. It's, it's just describing what happened. It's what real life is like. And I hate to say this, but many people in this room can tell you that this sort of thing is real. If the Bible's true, this is exactly the sort of thing you'd expect to find in it. And in fact, for me, this story increases my confidence in the Bible because no group of people would invent a story about their national hero, um, the guy who wrote a lot of their sacred book, and then put that story like this in their sacred book. This must have, must have happened. But even more, the problem with thinking that you know, the Bible's evil, look at all the evil in it, is 
This is here for a different purpose entirely. It's here to show us what God thinks of this. And you find out in verse 27. Do you realize verse 27 is left till last so that we hear it as the bottom line, the punchline? Look at verse 27, the last verse of the chapter, right at the end of it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Another way, um, a different translation says it, is that it was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like all different translations, it's just slightly different wording saying the same thing. But literally the Hebrew says, it was evil in God's eyes. Which I want to say to you guys, brothers and sisters, that is a big thing to realize. That God has, maybe not literalized, but he sees and he hates evil. Sin doesn't escape his notice and he won't brush it off. I don't know if you noticed as we were going through that, but in in this chunk of the Bible we've been reading, God so far hasn't said or done anything. And to me, that feels like real life. You can think you're getting away with it. Or if you're the victim, you can think that God doesn't care. But what we can see here is that the silence of God doesn't mean the absence of God. He sees. And um, what you see in chapter 12 is that he doesn't let sin stay hidden. But God exposes it and deals with it. We won't have time to go into a lot of that. But I want to say it's actually a real gracious, good thing of God, a kind thing that he brings this sin out uh, into the open because that's David's only hope. As much as David and, and I and you, we, try to cover up sin, the Bible says that our sin will one day be discovered. If it's not in this life, then it will be on judgment day. Jesus said in Luke 12 verse 2, there's nothing concealed. You can look this up. Luke 12 verse 2, there's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. Jesus said you're going to have to explain every loose word that you spoke. What you did in secret, it'll be uncovered on judgment day. You can, you can excuse, you can hide, you can, I can cover up my sin, I can run from it, but like David, we'll eventually run smack bang into God. The one who sees sin and the one who hates it. And I want to say to you, if you're someone here tonight who has been hurt by sin, that God... Has, he's seen it and he's furious about it as well and he's, he's aware he's doing it in a few minutes um, we'll, we'll look a bit more at what God does about it but I think there's a really massive warning that you and I need to hear from chapter 11 and it's this even the best of the best easily walk away from God imagine if my confession at the start of my talk was real or if Jono or the senior minister at this church, Andrew Heard. Imagine if one of us made a similar confession. Now take that and times that by about 10, or maybe more. That's how unthinkable it was that this guy, David, God's king, the best of the best, would do these things. And so this passage exists as a a warning to us about the total suckiness of sin. God's goal in this, and mine tonight as I show you what God's word says, is to help you hate sin and see it for the sham that it is. See, do you see how in this passage sin promises so much but delivers only pain? Satan's real and he lies to us. What do you reckon David thought that he was getting? What was going on in his head? It'll feel good. No one will find out. Don't think too much about it, just do it. 
For me, that's what temptation always feels like. But think about it. Have you ever come away from a sin feeling good? It's sugar-coated poison. It looks good on the outside, but it tastes like vomit once it's down your throat. And then there's the consequences and the pain as well. Um, Guys, God's way is good. He made you. He, He knows you. He knows how life is best lived. He invented it. And his commands lead to the best kind of life. Well, that's something that I forget really easily. I mentioned that David already had a bunch of wives. That was sin in itself. But how many wives are enough? How many sins satisfy? Well, that's the thing. Sin never satisfies. Greed is never full. Lust is never content. And the more you feed your sin, the bigger its appetite gets. A bit of my story. I called myself a Christian for most of high school. Um, But for most of that time, deep down, I knew I wasn't a Christian because I loved sin too much. I didn't want to lose it. And I know that there are people here like that. If you're running from God and if sin is the reason, just you don't have to tell anyone your answer to this, but honestly, in your own heart, can you honestly say there's not something missing here? Sin hurts us. It hurts others and it never satisfies. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, because some people do think this, that Christians make too big a deal of sin, especially sexual sin. And I think that there's some truth in that. We as Christians ought to talk more about grace, and I'm getting to that, and God's love and God's forgiveness. But let me just say, Satan preaches on sin every single week. Song lyrics, movies, commercials that use sex to sell things, TV shows, Facebook posts, articles that go around on the internet that say you're missing out. Compared to Satan, Christians talk about sexual sin a lot less. But that's okay, because God's word is more powerful than Satan's. And so I just wonder whether you'll hear this warning tonight. Look at what it, ha- what it did to David. And because you guys are teenagers, and I was a teenager, let me point out to you from this passage that sexual immorality, sex before marriage, any sexual acts, lust, pornography, they will hurt you, not help you, and God hates it. Now, I'm talking about the big things and the little things. I think that there might be people listening who've done things that they feel are and may be as big as David's here. And they need to, that, if you're that person, you need to keep listening because the last bit of this talk, I'm going to say you're not a lost cause. Things aren't too far gone for, it, for you. You haven't crossed some sort of a line that you can't come back from. God is bigger than that. But because I love the people in this room and I want to spare everyone else from going there too, I want you to hear this warning. Later in life, people look back and they say, I never intended to get here. It was the little decisions that added up to a path that led me to the big things. And so, brothers and sisters, resolve now. Make a decision now to take action, to repent and turn from whatever sins are in your life, big or small. Some people say, why would God care what I do in my bedroom? I want to know what kind of a God would create a person and then stop caring what that person does. God loves you enough to care. 
And not only that, but God invented these things. He's not out to stop your fun. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to its fullness. I'm not saying sex is bad. I'm not saying whatever is bad. They're good things. And the problem is Satan wants to take them and bend them out of shape so that they hurt. And so um, let me urge you not to buy the lie about sexual sin. Ephesians chapter 5 says that among us Christians, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Cut off pornography. Break up. Don't go to that party. Get rid of your phone. Decide now to keep your pants on and your eyes away. Because God sees it and it sucks. And guys, I'm, I'm preaching the Bible here, but I'm also telling you my personal experience. We ought to see in this passage the suckiness of sin and want to be rid of it, whatever it takes. But do you know what the main message of this passage is not? Well, it is, it is a warning about the suckiness of sin, but that's not the main message. And it's not try harder. Do you know why that's not the main reason? Because we've seen in this passage that no matter how hard you try, even the best of the best easily wander from God. This stuff I've been saying tonight is true of a guy who wrote a big chunk of the Bible. And it's true for you and me. And this is the other reason that God caused this to be written down from us. It's to save us from making the silly mistake of thinking, I'm a good and innocent person before God. I'm not saying everyone's equal necessarily, but inside all of us, there's a power that tugs our hearts towards evil. We're rebels against God from the deepest parts of our being. It's our instinct. You see the sign that says, don't walk on the grass, and instantly, what do you want to do? You see, don't spit, and you can instantly feel the saliva welling up in your mouth. David got to this place because he's just like us. Our hearts are sinful, so that even the best of the best of us easily wanders from God. Now, for me as a Christian, what I've just said is strangely encouraging. Because sometimes, I don't know if you felt this as well, but, and this is dead honest, not pretending or anything like this. Um, the, only the intro is pretend. But dead honest, sometimes I feel that I'm the worst Christian. I really do. I, I keep going back to sin. And I know that there are some Christians here who feel like that. If you are feeling like that, that everyone else around here has it together, um, they've all got it sorted out except me, I think that's one of the most paralyzing emotions in the Christian life. And it's not true. No, we don't. This is all of us. Even the best of the best easily walk away from God. And so what do we do about it? Well, this is why the main point of tonight isn't try harder, because that won't get you to God. The first thing you got to do is admit it and ask for forgiveness. I read a verse in 1 John chapter 1 this morning, and it's, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you, clean you from all unrighteousness. If you ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name, it's given to you. You really need to hear that. But then, once you've been forgiven, you want to fight it. And the way you want to fight it is by prayer and the word of God. See, If you look at chapter 12, verse 9, you'll see the the problem started for David in in a particular place. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 9. Nathan, the prophet, God sent him to David, and he's showing David where where he went wrong. And he says this, look at verse 9. 
David, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? What was the problem for David? Where did this all start? He despised the word of God, God's word. He ignored it. He didn't consider it very important. And that's where it all came from, which suggests to me that the best way to fight is to start here with your attitude to God's word. And so let me speak to you leaders. Do you make a daily habit of getting into God's word? Let me speak to all of us. The battles against sin are won and lost in the battleground of how you view God's word and the place it has in your life. So I'll leave you to consider what that means for when and how you read it. For the place of youth group and G-teams in your life. But I will say this, if Satan's preaching to us every day, how often do we need to hear God's voice in his word? And I want to tell you another tool in this fight. Um, It's not on the same level as prayer and and the word of God, but um, there's a very Christian word for it. It's the word accountability. Um, But forget the word, here's what it is. It's It's realizing that even the best of the best easily walk away from God. And so I need people around me to help me stay on track. About a month ago, a good mate from Bible college asked if we could have a chat. Um, I don't get enough exercise, so I went for a walk for about an hour um, as we chatted. And he said that he'd been thinking about a conversation we'd had. And he'd been praying for me. And he wanted to talk to me about a, a sin in my life that he knew about. And it was serious, I'm telling you that, because it took an hour. And he did it really well. He was gentle. He wasn't judgmental. He didn't Bible bash me. He said, I know you know the Bible. I asked him to show me verses anyway. But he, he listened to me. But he was firm with me as well. And he told me that what I was doing was wrong and that I needed to repent. I went away and thought about it and I decided he was right. And I am really thankful to God that he did that. He said that a lot of people he tries to talk to about sin get angry with him. But I think about it like this. How much does a person have to love me to think about me, to pray about me, and then to give an hour of his short life to talking to me about my Christian life? And so, guys, I want to urge you, if anyone ever tries to help you see some sin in your life and deal with it, however clumsy they are, can I urge you to thank God for them and to see it as an act of love? Your leaders might try and do it. Your, your family might try and do it. Your other people in youth group might try and do it. Listen to them. They may not be right, but consider it and be thankful to them. And then I know it can be done badly. It can be preachy. It can be done harshly. But if you come in humbly, gently, ready to listen... You can save a person from a whole world of pain. And so guys, I reckon as a youth group, we ought to be occasionally saying to each other, like you'll find out, Nathan as a prophet from God, he's pretty harsh with David, and maybe there's a time for that as well. But um, like, like Nathan to David, I think we as a youth group ought to be saying to each other, hey, can I talk to you about something? Can we sit down? <laughs> can we go for a walk? Can, can, we, can I just talk to you? Let's get a milkshake. Whatever you say. We need, we need each other like that. But I'll say it's a lot easier if you've asked for it yourself, if, if someone doesn't have to come to you. But it's better if you say, hey, I've been struggling with pornography. I've been struggling with lying. I've been struggling with pride. Can I ask you please to check in with me, see how I'm going, and remind me to keep fighting, to pray for me? 
If you're, if you're someone who's serious about fighting sin, that can actually be really helpful. Jordan, who did this with me a month ago, he said, sin is like mushrooms. It grows really well in the dark. Best to get it out into the light. Guys, I think this community should be the most... If this stuff is true, if we believe this stuff, which I do, this community should be the most willing community in, on the Central Coast to admit sin to each other, this and other youth groups, and the least judgmental. Why? Because we already know that the best of the best of us easily walk away from God. You already know I'm a sinner. Nothing I say should surprise you. I already know you're a sinner. That means nothing you can say. I think sometimes youth group kids tell me things they're struggling with and expect me to be surprised. I'm not. I know we're sinners. And I already know as well that Jesus is an even bigger saviour than whatever sin that is that they've got. And so guys, let's be, let's be open with each other about our sins and reminding each other about Jesus, his forgiveness and his salvation. But I raised earlier um, whether you think that Christians talk too much about sin and negative stuff. Because I do think we do which sounds hypocritical, I think, considering what I've just done. But um, what I've been talking about, I've been doing because it's real, it's true, it's important, and it's hearing God's word. But the Christian life is not supposed to be focused on sin and guilt. It's meant to be focused on God's grace. God's grace means here's something for nothing when you deserve worse than nothing. It's the action that he took in sending Jesus to be our saviour, to take away our sin, to give us forgiveness. The biggest reason, actually, this is in here, is not actually as a warning to sin. Um, That is a big reason. But the biggest reason is to show us a God who's able to bring good from evil and who's able to give us grace. See, David doesn't deserve anything. He deserves worse than nothing. But God shows his grace to David in so many ways. He sends a prophet to him to show him the error of his ways. He, we, you would have heard that there are consequences for David's sin. In Hebrews it said that God disciplines the one that he loves. That's grace as well. But I want you to particularly look at verse 13 of chapter 12. And we're going to end here. Verse 13 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. God doesn't give David what he deserves. And here's the biggest message of the Bible and the biggest message of this passage. God gives grace. He forgives sins. And guilt, I want to tell you guys really quickly how to deal with guilt because it's a big problem in the Christian life. You're not supposed to be beaten down by it. Guilt is like a smoke detector. When there's a smoke detector going off, when you've got guilt, it's supposed to tell you, hey, there's a sin in my life. That's what guilt says. So you're supposed to look for the fire, look for the sin, put it out, repent from the sin, confess to to God, ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name, and your guilt is taken away, like David's. So why would that smoke alarm still be going off? If Jesus has taken away your guilt, why do you feel guilty? Well, it could be that you haven't repented or it could just be that you're struggling to believe the gospel. And that's my struggle as well. But the way that guilt should function in the Christian life and the way that it functioned for David is he went to God and he confessed, God, I've sinned against you. And God forgave him. And as you read the rest of the chapter, David continues being God's servant. That's how it's supposed to work. So let the smoke detector of guilt drive you to repentance and drive you to God for forgiveness 
but don't let it keep beating you down. All right, I'll wrap up. Brothers and sisters, even the best of us, we easily walk away from God. The whole messy story of the Old Testament is meant to help us see that we shouldn't be looking at the golden boy David or any king or any prime minister or any celebrity or any preacher or Jono or me or your leader or anyone else to rescue us. We should put our trust in God. And it's supposed to make us realize that we need someone for guidance. We need someone for rescue who's not like David. And you know what? Out of this whole thing, David and Bathsheba, they had a son. Who had a son, who had a son, who had a son, and so on. And one of their sons' name was Jesus. And then you see that God is able to bring good out of evil. And I think it's important we get that as well. But... After all that we've read in this story, I think it's really clear to us why it's so good that Jesus is not a king like David. Jesus was the king who never sinned. He's the king who brought forgiveness for our sins. And this story is here to say that even the best of the best human is not enough. We need Jesus. And I'm really thankful that he is my saviour. I encourage you, make him yours. And then get fighting sin. Let me pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you're a God of grace, a pursuing grace that chased David and chases us, an exposing grace that showed David his sin, shows us our sin, even though it's uncomfortable. It's the only hope we've got of finding forgiveness. And I thank you that you're a God of forgiving grace. You give us more than we deserve. In fact, you give us yourself. You give us relationship with you. You wash us clean in Jesus' name. And I pray that tonight people would find that salvation. And I pray that for those who already know it, we would hate sin, see its lie, and fight it. By prayer in your word, in Jesus' name, amen.